0: Our scripture reading is from Luke 1, 67 through 79, and this is found on page 856 in your pew Bible, and if you don't own a Bible, we really want you to, so please just take that one from the pew, take it home, and it's yours. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, welcome to Christ Community. Again, my name is Bill Gorman, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so thankful that you have joined us this morning especially during this season of advent and as we take time to gather to look at the scriptures the passage that holly just read for us uh, i'd love to pray to the one uh, who has spoken those words inspired those words in our bibles this morning and ask for him to speak afresh to us this morning so let's do that now father in heaven you are the one who by your spirit inspired these words uh, that Zechariah spoke, that Luke recorded, that have been preserved for us for all these years. And I pray now that you who have spoken uh, through the apostles and the prophets would speak now afresh through these words to us, that our spirits would be in tune with your Holy Spirit, the very one who inspired these words in the beginning. We pray this now in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, the song uh, "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas" it's a, a classic of this season. Uh, but I wonder if you know that the lyrics of that song "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas" have been changed a number of times. The the song was first written uh, for and recorded for the musical "Meet Me in St. Louis." But when the songwriter brought the lyrics to Judy Garland, who starred in that film, and the director, uh, they, they both read the lyrics and and asked Hugh Martin, the writer, to change them because they felt like it was too depressing. So that the words that we're familiar with go like this, have yourself a merry little Christmas, let your heart be light, next year all our troubles will be out of sight. That's a a lovely, joyous kind of thing to sing. That line in the song was originally this, have yourself a merry little Christmas, it may be your last. (laughs) Next year we may all be living in the past. Uh, So it was a little bit of a darker turn. Uh, Later on, when Frank Sinatra recorded the song in 1957, uh, he asked Martin to change some more lyrics to the song. Sinatra uh, felt that the line, until then, will have to muddle through somehow, which is still, that's a recorded version that's out there a lot. But in Sinatra's version, uh, he didn't feel like that was jolly enough for his album, which was titled A Jolly Christmas. He said, we need to make this a little more jolly. And so Martin changed that line to hang a star upon the highest bow, which is kind of like, what does that line even mean? It's kind of a meaningless line. It just was tossed in there. But it's also been pointed out that in Sinatra's version, many of the the future tenses of the verbs uh, of the song change to present tenses. So the, the focus is more on a present celebration of present happiness rather than anticipating a better hope in the future. So why is this? Why do we as a culture why did we feel like we, that song is too dark? We have to, to change it. We can't sing that sign of a song at Christmas. And I think at least part of it is because the commercial engine of Christmas has tried to shut out the darkness of the season. But for centuries, Christians have known and named what so many of us feel, and that is that there is deep darkness in the world And in this season of Advent, much like the season of Lent prior to Easter, is designed to help us take what the writer Fleming Rutledge calls a fearless inventory of the darkness. What a great line! I love that—a fearless inventory of the darkness. Last week, Tish Harrison Warren, who wrote the fantastic book uh, *The Liturgy of the Ordinary*, she wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times uh, titled "Want to Get into the Christmas Spirit? Face the Darkness." how I fell in love with the season of Advent. And I'd encourage you, as soon as you get home today, to Google that article, don't do it now, but Google that article and and read it. It's worth uh, every minute you'll spend reading it. She writes this in the article, to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep, wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime We dwell in a world wracked with conflict, violence, suffering, darkness. Advent, she says, holds space for our grief. It reminds us that all of us, one way or another, not only are wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it, contributing to our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. The believer and the atheist alike, she says, can agree that there is an undeniable brokenness to the world. Sickness that needs remedy. And then, you know, later on in the article, she points out she's not totally anti celebration at this time. She says, I don't want to be the Grinch tisking anyone for decorating the tree early or firing up Jingle Bell Rock before the 25th. She says, I'm all for happiness, joy, eggnog, corny sweaters, and parties, but to rush into Christmas without first taking time to collectively acknowledge the sorrow in the world and in our own lives seems like an inebriated and overstuffed practice of denial. Again, what another well-crafted line. An inebriated and overstuffed practice of denial. And, and so this morning, if you're here and you feel the ache, if you feel the darkness, if you feel the holiday blues, you, you feel like you should be joyful and happy, but you just can't be, Advent is for you. And it's for all of us. It's what we find here in our passage this morning that the church has been doing for centuries. What Zechariah was doing (coughs) in this first song so long ago—one of these first songs of Christmas in the Gospel of Luke, which is the series we're in for Advent, looking at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and the songs, the poems that are captured in those first couple of chapters that celebrate the coming of Jesus. And Zechariah is looking at the whole world and he's naming the darkness. He is naming the need for a Savior to come. He's taking a fearless inventory of the darkness. And then against the backdrop of that darkness, the dawning of life, of salvation, of Christmas, is all the more stunning. And so this morning, together, as we look at Zachariah's song, we want to take, for the most of the sermon, we just want to take a fearless inventory of the darkness together. What is in this song that points to the darkness? And then we want to pause also for a moment to begin to marvel at the beauty of the sunrise of salvation. So, first, as we look at the song, we we see at least three types of darkness on display in Zechariah's song. And the first is the darkness of silence. And and I think all of us, uh, most of us probably, have at some point in our lives experienced the darkness of silence. You've longed to hear God speak. You've prayed, you've pleaded with him for something, and it just seems like there is no answer. Or worse, the answer is no, and you feel utterly alone, and the silence is deafening. Zachariah, he knew the darkness of silence, and he knew it personally. We'll get to that in a moment. But, but he also knew it because he was a Jew living in the Roman-occupied country of Israel at the dawn of the first century and Luke introduces us to Zechariah early in chapter 1 and in Zechariah or in Luke chapter 1 it has been 400 years 400 since God has sent a prophet to speak to his people and you see in the history of God's people in the history of God's people the Israelites really from the time of Moses, the leader who led God's people out of slavery to Egypt. He was considered kind of the first prophet. From that time, all the way through to the time that God's people were exiled into Babylon and then seventy years later come back to their homeland, all during that time, God had sent prophets, people to speak God's word, to call them back to faithfulness to his covenant, to offer encouragement and hope and, and promises that God would send a deliverer and hope and restoration. But after the prophet Malachi at the end of the Old Testament in our Bibles, there had been no word from God. Just silence. Silence for 400 years. It's a long time, nearly half a millennium, right? Almost half a millennium of time. When you think about that today, okay, what was happening 400 years ago from today? The year was 1619, the first African slaves were being brought to this continent. 400 years. That's how long it's been since God has spoken. And Zechariah felt it acutely because he was one of the 18,000 priests who were serving God in the temple... And he was doing his best to obey and to serve God, to to keep the practices of the law, hoping for a word to come from God, hoping for God to send a deliverer. And, And he also felt that silence acutely because of his own personal circumstances. Zachariah and his wife, Elizabeth, they were old. And just like Abraham and Sarah of the Old Testament, who this is supposed to call to our minds those connections, they were old and they had no child. Like Abraham and Sarah, Zechariah and Elizabeth had longed for a child, and now they are far too old to have one. They had prayed, they had asked, and yet no child had come. And then one day, the biggest day of Zechariah's life, all of that changes. Again, he was one of the 18,000 or so priests, and he gets the opportunity of a lifetime. The, the priests would do lots of kind of work in and around the temple, but they would cast lots, they kind of roll a dice to select Someone who would go each day into the holy place in the temple—not the holy of holies. The high priest only went there once a year, but there was a holy place in the temple where they would offer incense, and the incense rising in the temple was a symbol of the prayers of God's people rising to hear him. And, and you, if I was a priest, maybe you would get to do that once in your life. And Zechariah, his number comes up, and this is his day. He gets to be the one to go into the holy place to light the, the incense on the incense altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And he offers this incense as a symbol of God's, uh, the prayers going to God's people. And on that day, as Zechariah is in the holy place, offering this incense, God answers not only the prayers of Zechariah and his wife for a child, but also the prayers of an entire nation for the last 400 years. And he does so by sending the angel Gabriel, the same angel who speaks to Mary, which we looked at last week. And here's how it goes down. Luke chapter one, verse eight. Now he Zachariah was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, and according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And a whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the incense of altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled, to say the least. And when he saw him, the fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Elijah was one of the prophets. You see, a prophet, a word from God is coming to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient of the, the wisdom to the, the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, in that moment, what's Zechariah's response going to be? Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And I love what Gabriel's response is. He just says his name. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you good news. How dare you not believe me, basically. And behold, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So, just a word to the wise. If Gabriel ever shows up, tells you something, you should believe him. Otherwise, you might not be able to speak for a long time. After 400 years, the silence is broken. It's ironic, though, that the silence has been broken, but now Zechariah can't speak. Zechariah and Elizabeth will have a son, and he will be a prophet like Elijah. But because Zachariah doesn't believe, he doesn't get to speak until the baby is born. And, and then we fast forward in the story, and the baby is born, and he writes the name on a tablet. His name should be John. And initially the people like, wait a second, that can't be his name. You can't name John. You don't have anyone in your family named John. Even the first century, people had a lot of opinions about baby names, um, just like they do today. And uh, they're like, you can't name him John. And he says, like, no, the name is, is John. And in that moment, as soon as he writes it on the tablet, He can speak again. And he sings the song that we heard read at the beginning of the service. He declares in verse 68, The Lord has visited us. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed his people. Now, that language of visiting or visitation is not kind of common language that we use. At least I don't use it in this kind of sense that we talk about maybe going to visit someone's house for the afternoon or maybe some guests are coming to visit for Christmas for a few days. But the, that translation of the idea of visitation isn't just like dropping by. It's, it's, a, it's a word of intimacy, of presence, of staying close, of settling in for a while. You know, it makes me think of, of Cousin Eddie in Christmas Vacation. When he says to Clark, now, now you don't get too attached to that RV, because we're taking it with us when we leave next month, right? Now don't take that analogy too far, because I think that would make Jesus cousin Eddie in the analogy, but, or Zachariah, I don't know. Uh, so during the season of Advent, which again is what Christ, to Christmas what Lent is to Easter, during the season we take an inventory of the silence, All the while remembering that we live on a visited planet. We live on a visited planet. The king, the king, friends, has come. But we don't only face the darkness of silence, we also face the darkness of enemies. Keep looking, verses 69 through 71. He has raised up for a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. Now, in the first century, the enemy that the Israelites were thinking of was Rome, right? This occupying force who was keeping them in bondage. But but the Romans are just one embodiment of the many enemies that God's people have always faced. The enemies of the world, that that system that is running things, that is aligned against God and His purposes. The the enemy of the flesh, that, that impulse within us to do what we know we shouldn't do, but we do anyway. And ultimately... The enemy of the accuser, the Satan, the devil, the, that supernatural personal power intent on destroying God's good world. There are enemies. And, and, and Zechariah's son, John the Baptist, as he would come to be known, would face these enemies. In fact, his faithfulness to the light would end up with him beheaded. We read this later on in the Gospels. And I wonder where you're facing enemies. Maybe they are the, the enemies of, of, your, of your own heart, those, that impulse within you to do what you know you shouldn't do, which you don't even really want to do, but you still end up doing those addictions and habits and patterns. Or maybe there are enemies who mock you for for believing in Jesus. Maybe if you're a student in particular, you feel opposition when, when you choose not to drink at a party or when you choose not to look at the pornography that's on a friend's phone. And in those moments, you might be mocked as simple or ignorant or prude or holier than thou. We remember the darkness of enemies in this season. We also remember that because Jesus has visited us, our response to our enemies is not to hate them, but to love them. Jesus responded with love to us when we were his enemies, which the book of Ephesians is so clear that all of us are naturally God's enemies. And he calls us to love those who hate us just as he even loved us while we were yet sinners. The darkness of silence, the darkness of enemies, there's also the darkness of sin. And this is what Tish Warren is talking about in her op-ed piece when she writes that one way or the other, we are not only wounded by evil in the world, which we all are, but we also are wielders of it. Every one of us wields evil, contributing to our own moments of unkindness and patience or selfishness. I think we all know it deep down that we are not all that we are supposed to be. We do not do all that we are supposed to do. That we, for all of our best efforts and trying, we are part of the problem. That's what sin is. That's what sin does. As Alexander Sosinitsyn has put it so powerfully, he says, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the dividing line, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? Verse 77 here in Zechariah's song speaks about the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. All that stuff that Tish Warren is talking about, all that stuff Alexander Solzhenitsyn is talking about. This is says, John will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness, in the forgiveness of their sins. But do you and I know, do we acknowledge, do we really sit in the reality that you and I, we need forgiving? Have you paused to acknowledge that the dividing line of good and evil cuts through your heart. Not just someone else's, but yours. And I'll just tell you this morning, if you're having trouble identifying those things on the evil side, just call up your parents or ask them if you're sitting next to them uh, or anyone else, for that matter, that you've lived with for more than a few weeks, and I'm sure they'll be able to give you lots of ideas on what kinds of things might fall on the evil side, the annoying side, the frustrating side. Because we are all end up being the enemies of someone else in our life, don't we? The person for whom their plans always seem like they're being wrecked by us, by our selfishness, our unkindness. Advent gives us the space to reflect on the darkness that's inside of us. And, and here's the thing, Advent assumes, it assumes that we are not ready for God. It assumes that you and I are not ready for the sunrise to come. Uh, have you ever had that moment where you go to see a movie during the day, maybe during Christmas break, if you're off work, out of school, you get to go watch a movie uh, on an afternoon sometime, and, and you're sitting in the movie theater for two hours, and it's super dark, and, and you walk out of the theater, and the sun is blazing. Maybe there's snow on the ground, and it's even brighter, right? And you just—it's it's painful to see the light. Your eyes aren't ready for it. You see, Advent prepares us to be able to see, to able to expect, to rejoice in the light that is coming, the light of Christmas, the sunrise of salvation. And and it's what Zachariah's whole song is pointing us to, that the light is coming. And and just a couple of things here, they'll they'll, they'll be quick as we wrap up on the sunrise of salvation is coming. And the first thing we see is the, the light of the word Again, for 400 years, the silence is broken, and it's broken not just by a word spoken, but by a word incarnate, by Jesus coming as the living, breathing word of God. We don't just get silence. We don't just get writing. We get a person in this moment. That's the scandalous claim of Christmas. That God, Yahweh, the Creator God, who took on humanity, the God who, if you've been, <coughs> excuse me, who's been with us for this uh, this past year. We we started page one of Genesis. The God who spoke the world into being. That that very God has taken on humanity. That Jesus is God in human flesh, fully, truly God, fully and truly human. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the ancestor of the house of David who would come to deliver his people from their enemies. the, The fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes and expectations and dreams. The one who would break the silence, who would forgive the sins that kept us, that kept them, that keep me in bondage to decay and that's the next thing we see, the light of God's mercy in particular in the forgiveness of sins. And, and you know, this morning, this is one of the ways you can know if, I, if you've really started to come into contact with the gospel and you've actually started to become a Christian, that you really understood what it means to be a Christian and you've begun to experience the new life in Christ, that you, that you actually come to feel a deep need for God's mercy in your life. Uh, but, it, but if you're here this morning you feel like you're pretty much fine. Like I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm not perfect, but yeah, I'm pretty good. And that God should just kind of accept me, accept me the way I am. And be actually, He should be grateful that I came to church. And I mean, sometimes I even put some money in the offering box. Come on, God! Like, you should be you should be pleased with me. If that's where you felt, then you haven't been in touch lately with the heart of the gospel of mercy. The gospel, of the forgiveness of sins, uh, the, the gospel that recognizes that we are in desperate need of a rescue, or someone to rescue us from our enemies, someone to rescue us from ourselves, someone to rescue us for the mess that we've made of our lives, and the mess that we make of everyone's life who comes into contact with ours for more than a, a few minutes at a time. But you see, we all deserve to be excluded from this kingdom that's coming. We all, by nature, should want to flee away from the light. But God has had mercy on us. And we who are dead can be made alive because of his mercy. Look at verses 77 and 78. To give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Why? Because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So in his mercy, through his death on the cross, Jesus defeats death. Every one of us sits in the shadow of death. It is coming for all of us. This is not even in my notes, but I was just thinking about this this week. I've been reading a lot of biographies of, of presidents. I started with Washington. I'm going through. Every biography ends the same. It's something about reading them. They all die at the end. It's actually kind of depressing. Every one of these stories, it like ends with how this person eventually got old and sick and they died. Every biography ends that way. We all live in the shadow of death there is one coming whose biography doesn't end in death. And who, if we place our trust and faith in him, is going to ensure that our biography ultimately won't end in death. Why? Because of the forgiveness of sin through his tender mercy, through his victorious resurrection from the grave. Jesus has defeated both sin and death, and you are free. The light has come. The darkness is fleeing away. And few have put this more eloquently eloquently, or more powerfully outside of the Scriptures themselves than St. Athanasius of Alexandria. St. Athanasius was, a, was an African theologian in the 4th century from North Africa along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And he was one of the most passionate and clear and consistent defenders of the truth that Jesus was truly God and truly God. Human. At a time, we can as sort of take that as a set doctrine. There was a time in the church when that had not been established fully, and Athanasius fought his whole intellectual and faithful life to teach that truth. And when one of his best works on that subject, called On the Incarnation, he writes these words. You know how it is when some great king enters a large city and dwells in one of its houses. Because of his dwelling in that single house, the whole city is honored. And the enemies and robbers ceased to molest it. He says, even so it is with the king of all, Jesus, he has come into our country and dwelt in one body amidst the many. And in consequence, the designs of the enemy against mankind have been foiled and the corruption of death, which formerly held them in its power, has simply ceased to be For the human race would have perished utterly had not the Lord and Savior of all the Son of God come among us to put an end to death. I want to give you just a couple of next steps this week. This week during Advent, I I want to encourage you. I want to plead with you to do two things. You don't have to do them, but I really want you to do these two things. First, schedule... 10 minutes, and, and maybe it's right before you go to bed or right when you wake up, but find 10 minutes. And with a piece of paper and a notebook, take a fearless inventory of the darkness in your own life. Just set a timer on your phone for 10 minutes, set it across the room, <laughs> then go back and sit in your chair where you can't reach it. And with a piece of paper, just write down on the top of the just two questions. What is the season of Advent calling me to change? And where do I need mercy? And just sit for 10 minutes and just write, see what comes out, just keep writing. Whatever comes to mind, doesn't have to be polished, doesn't have to be punctuated correctly, just kind of stream of consciousness. What do I need to change? What is the season calling me to change? Where do I need mercy? Start writing down what comes to your mind. That's one thing. Here's the other thing, and you could really do these on the same day, even kind of maybe one right after the other. Here's the second thing. Set an alarm sometime this week for 7 a.m. and find an east-facing window. Or, or, or better yet, go on a walk. And As you do, watch the sun rise. Right now, the sun rises and comes to what's considered full sunrise at about 7.22, 7.23 a.m. So if you start walking or looking out your window at 7 a.m., it'll be, it won't be pitch black, but it'll be pretty dark. But over the course of 20 minutes, the light Will come and fill your window, fill your neighborhood, fill it as you're walking. And as you watch the morning go from dark to light, ponder the reality that ours is a visited planet, that the King has come, that he will come again, that his light will chase away all the darkness forevermore. Because, yes, we face the darkness of silence. Yes, we face the darkness of sin and suffering. Yes, we face the darkness of enemies. But we don't face the darkness without hope. And in those practices of taking a fearless inventory of the darkness, of of watching the sun rising, you don't have to do those things this week. You also don't have to take a vacation. But both, I think, would be really good for you to do. Find places of joy in those moments. The light has come, and it will come again in full. That is the great promise of Advent. It lets us embrace the reality of the darkness, but not without hope, for we know that the light has come and the light will come in full again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have sent the light of your Son, Jesus, to brighten our world, to defeat death, to chase away the dark shadow of death for all time. And that through our faith and hope and, and trust in you this morning, that our biography does not have to end in death, but it can end in life, in resurrection life from the very Son of God, who has come to be with us. The one who has made us has come to live with us. May this week we go in the hope of that knowledge that we live on a visited planet. For you, our Maker, has come and dwelt among us and is coming again to renew all things. In Jesus' name, amen.